In a rare move, I encourage you, the listener, to follow along with the source material linked in the description. This episode begins on page 20 of the PDF. You'll notice that Lennon compiled figures into beautifully formatted tables, and despite my best efforts, I am not confident that I effectively conveyed that information through this audio-only format, but the choice is yours. This is a continuation of Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism by Vladimir Lenin. Chapter 2 Banks and Their New Role. The principal and primary function of banks is to serve as middlemen in the making of payments. In doing so, they transform inactive money capital into active, that is, into capital yielding a profit. They collect all kinds of money revenues and place them at the disposal of the capitalist class. As banking develops and becomes concentrated in a small number of establishments, the banks grow from modest middlemen into powerful monopolies, having at their command almost the whole of the money capital of all of the capitalists and small businessmen, and also the larger part of the means of production and sources of raw materials in any one country and in a number of countries. This transformation of numerous modest middlemen into a handful of monopolists is one of the fundamental processes in the growth of capitalism into capitalist imperialism. For this reason, we must first of all examine the concentration of banking. In 1907 to 1908, the combined deposits of the German joint stock banks, each having a capital of more than a million marks, amounted to 7,000 million marks. In 1912 to 13, these deposits already amounted to 9,800 million marks, an increase of 40% in five years. And of the 2,800 million increase, 2,750 million was divided among 57 banks, each having a capital of more than 10 million marks. The distribution of the deposits between big and small banks was as follows. From 1907 to 08, 47% of total deposits in nine big Berlin banks, 32.5% in the other 48 banks with a capital of more than 10 million marks, 16.5% in 115 banks with a capital of 1 to 10 million marks, and 4% in small banks with a capital of less than a million marks. From 1912 to 13, 49% in nine big Berlin banks, 36% in the other 48 banks with a capital of more than 10 million marks, 12% in 115 banks with a capital of one to 10 million marks, and 3% in small banks with a capital of less than a million marks. The small banks are being squeezed out by the big banks of which only nine concentrate in their hands almost half the total deposits. But we have left out of account many important details. For instance, the transformation of numerous small banks into actual branches of the big banks, etc. Of this, I shall speak later on. At the end of 1913, Schulze Gewernitz estimated the deposits in the nine big Berlin banks at 5,100 million marks out of a total of about 10,000 million marks. Taking into account not only the deposits, but the total bank capital, this author wrote, At the end of 1909, the nine big Berlin banks, together with their affiliated banks, controlled 11,300 million marks, that is about 83% of the total German bank capital. 
the Deutsche Bank, which together with its affiliated banks controls nearly 3,000 million marks, represents, parallel to the Prussian State Railway Administration, the biggest and also the most decentralized accumulation of capital in the old world. I have emphasized the reference to the affiliated banks because it is one of the most important distinguishing features of modern capitalist concentration. The big enterprises and the banks in particular not only completely absorb the small ones but also annex them, subordinate them, bring them into their own group or concern, to use the technical term, by acquiring holdings in their capital by purchasing or exchanging shares, by a system of credits, etc., etc. Professor Leafman has written a voluminous work of about 500 pages describing modern, quote, holding and finance companies, unquote, unfortunately adding very dubious theoretical reflections to what is frequently undigested raw material. To what results this holding system leads in respect of concentration is best illustrated in the book written on the big German banks by Reiser, himself a banker. But before examining his data, let us quote a concrete example of the holding system. The Deutsche Bank Group is one of the biggest, if not the biggest, of the big banking groups. In order to trace the main threads which connect all the banks in this group, a distinction must be made between holdings of the first and second and third degree, or what amounts to the same thing, between dependents of the lesser banks on the Deutsche Bank in the first, second, and third degree. We then obtain the following picture. The Deutsche Bank has holdings permanently in 17 other banks, 9 of the 17 have holdings in 34 other banks, and 4 of those 9 have holdings in 7 other banks. The Deutsche Bank has holdings for an indefinite period in 5 other banks. The Deutsche Bank has holdings occasionally in 8 other banks, 5 of the 8 have holdings in 14 other banks, and 2 of the 5 have holdings in 2 other banks. In total, Deutsche Bank has holdings in 30 other banks, 14 of the 30 have holdings in 48 other banks, and 6 of the 14 have holdings in 9 other banks. Included in the eight banks occasionally dependent on the Deutsche Bank in the first degree are three foreign banks, one Austrian, the Weiner Bankverein, and two Russian, the Siberian Commercial Bank and the Russian Bank for Foreign Trade. Altogether, the Deutsche Bank comprises directly and indirectly, partially and totally, 87 banks, and the total capital, its own and that of others which it controls, is estimated at between 2 and 3,000 million marks. It is obvious that a bank which stands at the head of such a group, and which enters into agreement with half a dozen other banks only slightly smaller than itself for the purpose of conducting exceptionally big and profitable financial operations, like floating state loans, has already outgrown the part of middleman and has become an association of a handful of monopolists. The rapidity with which the concentration of banking proceeded in Germany at the turn of the 20th century is shown by the following data, which we quote in an abbreviated form from Reiser. Six big Berlin banks. In year 1985, 16 branches in Germany, 14 deposit banks and exchange offices, 1 constant holdings in German joint stock banks, 42 total establishments. In the year 1900, 21 branches in Germany, 40 deposit banks and exchange offices, 8 constant holdings in German joint stock banks, and 80 total establishments. 
Year 1911, 104 branches in Germany, 276 deposit banks and exchange offices, 63 constant holdings in German joint stock banks, and 450 total establishments. We see the rapid expansion of a close network of channels, which cover the whole country, centralizing all capital and all revenues, transforming thousands and thousands of scattered economic enterprises into a single national capitalist, and then into a world capitalist economy. The decentralization that Schulze Gewernitz, as an exponent of present-day bourgeois political economy, speaks of in the passage previously quoted really means the subordination to a single center of an increasing number of formerly relatively independent, or rather, strictly local economic units. In reality, it is centralization, the enhancement of the role, importance, and power of monopolist giants. In the older capitalist countries, this banking network is still more close. In Great Britain and Ireland in 1910, there were in all 7,151 branches of banks. Four big banks had more than 400 branches each, from 447 to 689. Four had more than 200 branches each, and 11 more than 100 each. In France, three very big banks, Credit Jaune, Comptoir National, and the Société Générale, extended their operations and their network of branches in the following manner. In the year 1870, their branches and offices numbered 47 in the provinces, 17 in Paris, and 64 in total, with 200 million francs of their own capital and 427 million in deposits used as capital. In 1890, branches and offices numbered 192 in the provinces, 66 in Paris, and 258 in total, with 265 million francs of their own capital and 1,245 million francs in deposits. In 1909, branches and offices numbered 1,033 in the provinces, 196 in Paris, and 1,229 in total, with 887 million francs of their own capital and 4,363 million francs in deposits used as capital. In order to show the connections of a big modern bank, Reiser gives the following figures of the number of letters dispatched and received by the Discanto Gesellschaft, one of the biggest banks in Germany and in the world. Its capital in 1914 amounted to 300 million marks. In the year 1852, 6,135 letters were received, and 6,292 were dispatched. In 1870, 85,800 letters were received, and 87,513 were dispatched. And in the year 1900, 533,102 letters were received, and 626,043 were dispatched. The number of accounts of the big Paris bank, the Credit Lyonnais, increased from 28,535 in 1875 to 633,539 in 1912. These simple figures show, perhaps better than lengthy disquisitions, how the concentration of capital and the growth of bank turnover are radically changing the significance of the banks. Scattered capitalists are transformed into a single collective capitalist. When carrying the current accounts of a few capitalists, a bank, as it were, transacts a purely technical and exclusively auxiliary operation. 
When, however, this operation grows to enormous dimensions, we find that a handful of monopolists subordinate to their will all the operations, both commercial and industrial, of the whole of capitalist society. For they are enabled, by means of their banking connections, their current accounts, and other financial operations, first to ascertain exactly the financial position of the various capitalists, then to control them, to influence them by restricting or enlarging, facilitating or hindering credits, and finally to entirely determine their fate, determine their income, deprive them of capital, or permit them to increase their capital rapidly and to enormous dimensions, etc. We have just mentioned the 300 million marks capital of the Disconto Gesellschaft of Berlin. This increase of the capital of the bank was one of the incidents in the struggle for hegemony between two of the biggest Berlin banks, the Deutsche Bank and the Disconto. In 1870, the first was still a novice and had a capital of only 15 million marks, while the second had a capital of 30 million marks. In 1908, the first had a capital of 200 million, while the second had 170 million. In 1914, the first increased its capital to 250 million, and the second, by merging with another first-class big bank, Schaffhausenscher Bankverein, increased its capital to 300 million. And of course, the struggle for hegemony went hand in hand with the more frequent conclusion of agreements of an increasingly durable character between the two banks. The following are the conclusions that this development forces upon banking specialists who regard economic questions from a standpoint which does not in the least exceed the bounds of the most moderate and cautious bourgeois reformism. Commenting on the increase of the capital of the Disconto Gesellschaft to 300 million marks, the German review, Die Bank, wrote, Other banks will follow this same path and in the time the 300 men, who today govern Germany economically, will gradually be reduced to 50, 25, or still fewer. It cannot be expected that this latest move towards concentration will be confined to banking. The close relations that exist between individual banks naturally lead to the bringing together of the industrial syndicates which these banks favor. One fine morning we shall wake up in surprise to see nothing but trust before our eyes, and to find ourselves faced with the necessity of substituting state monopolies for private monopolies. However, we have nothing to reproach ourselves with, except that we have allowed things to follow their own course, slightly accelerated by the manipulation of stocks. This is an example of the impotence of bourgeois journalism, which differs from bourgeois science only in that the latter is less sincere and strives to obscure the essence of the matter, to hide the forest behind the trees, to be surprised at the results of concentration, to reproach the government of capitalist Germany or capitalist society, ourselves, to fear that the introduction of stocks and shares might accelerate concentration in the same way as the German cartel specialist, Schirsky, fears the American trusts and prefers the German cartels on the grounds that they, quote, may not, like the trusts, excessively accelerate technical and economic progress, unquote. Is not all this a sign of impotence? But facts remain facts. There are no trusts in Germany, there are only cartels. But Germany is governed by not more than 300 magnates of capital, and the number of these is constantly diminishing. At all events, banks greatly intensify and accelerate the process of concentration of capital and the formation of monopolies in all capitalist countries, notwithstanding the differences in their banking laws. The banking system possesses, indeed, 
the form of universal bookkeeping and distribution of means of production on a social scale, but solely the form, wrote Marx in Capital half a century ago. The figures we have quoted on the growth of bank capital, on the increase in the number of the branches and offices of the biggest banks, the increase in the number of their accounts, etc., present a concrete picture of this universal bookkeeping of the whole capitalist class. And not only of the capitalists, for the banks collect, even though temporarily, all kinds of money revenues, of small businessmen, office clerks, and of a tiny upper stratum of the working class. Universal distribution of means of production. That, from the formal aspect, is what grows out of the modern banks, which, numbering some three to six of the biggest in France, and six to eight in Germany, control millions and millions. In substance, however, the distribution of means of production is not at all universal, but private, i.e. it conforms to the interests of big capital, and primarily of huge monopoly capital, which operates under conditions in which the masses live in want, in which the whole development of agriculture hopelessly lags behind the development of industry, while within industry itself, the heavy industries exact tribute from all other branches of industry. In the matter of socializing capitalist economy, the savings banks and post offices are beginning to compete with the banks. They are more decentralized, i.e. their influence extends to a greater number of localities, to more remote places, to wider sections of population. Here is the data collected by an American commission on the comparative growth of deposits in banks and savings banks. In the year 1880, 8.4 billion marks were deposited in Britain's banks, and 1.6 billion marks were deposited in Britain's savings banks. 0.9 billion marks were deposited in France's savings banks. Half a billion were deposited in Germany's banks, 0.4 billion in Germany's credit societies, and 2.6 billion in German savings banks. In 1888, 12.4 billion marks were deposited in Britain's banks, 2.0 billion in Britain's savings banks, 1.5 billion in France's banks, 2.1 billion in France's savings banks, 1.1 billion, 0.4 billion, and 4.5 billion in Germany's banks, credit societies, and savings banks, respectively. In 1908, 23.2 billion marks were deposited in Britain's banks, and 4.2 billion in its savings banks. 3.7 billion were deposited in France's banks, and 4.2 billion in its savings banks. 7.1 billion, 2.2 billion, and 13.9 billion marks were deposited in Germany's banks, credit societies, and savings banks, respectively. As they pay interest at the rate of 4% and 4.25% on deposits, the savings banks must seek profitable investments for their capital, they must deal in bills, mortgages, etc. The boundaries between the banks and the savings banks, quote, become more and more obliterated, unquote. The chambers of commerce of Bochum and Erfurt, for example, demand that savings banks be prohibited from engaging in purely banking business, such as the discounting of bills. They demand the limitation of the banking operations of the post office. The banking magnates seem to be afraid that state monopoly will steal upon them from an unexpected quarter. It goes without saying, however, that this fear is no more than an expression of the rivalry, so to speak, between two department managers in the same office. For, on the one hand, 
the millions entrusted to the savings banks are in the final analysis actually controlled by these very same bank capital magnates. While, on the other hand, state monopoly in capitalist society is merely a means of increasing and guaranteeing the income of millionaires in some branch of industry who are on the verge of bankruptcy. The change from the old type of capitalism, in which free competition predominated, to the new capitalism, in which monopoly reigns, is expressed, among other things, by a decline in the importance of the stock exchange. The review, Die Bank, writes, The stock exchange has long ceased to be the indispensable medium of circulation that it formerly was when the banks were not yet able to place the bulk of new issues with their clients. I am filled temporarily with relief as we have conquered the tables full of numbers and the rest of chapter two will just be prose. Remember that you can access the menagerie before the rest of the world by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash and for now, comrades, calculate your epoch. Just kidding. Enjoy your epoch.